Good morning, church. One of the things you need to know about me is that I have a terrible sense of direction. And so back when we lived in Kansas, I could remember which way was east because I always remembered where the town Eureka was from me. So Eureka, I know it's spelled weird, but it starts with an E, so I always knew that Eureka was to my east, and if for some reason I couldn't figure out where Eureka was, I always remembered where the school named Central was. I know Central does not start with an S, but it sounds kind of like an S, and so Central was always to my south, and so that's how I oriented myself when we lived in Kansas. But then, just about three years ago, we moved here to Illinois, and we don't have a Eureka or a Central, at least not to my south. And so I had to learn to reorient myself, and to be honest with you, I haven't completely figured it out yet, but just give me a couple, a couple more years, because, you know, last year doesn't really count. I had to stay at home the whole year, so only really been here two years. So anyways, but we have gone back to Kansas over a dozen times. And so a couple trips ago, I I was pretty proud of myself. And I said, you know what, I'm going to try and get all the way back to Kansas to our house without using a GPS. Now it's only really about five or six turns. It's not too difficult, but you know what happened. Uh, I can't remember if it was in St. Louis or Kansas City. It was one of those big cities. Big cities, they just stress me out regardless of where I'm driving and if I know where I'm going. Big cities stress me out. And anyways, Janelle, my wife, asked me as we're starting to get into this big city, she said, do you want me to turn the GPS on? And I should have said, of course. But I said, no, I want to figure this out on my own. <laughs> I, I have done this enough times. I should know how to get home from here. And as we went, I took the wrong turn, of course, and when I take a wrong turn, I always get flustered, and I always get worked up a little bit, like, oh my goodness, I'm such a dummy, I shouldn't have done that, and then got to figure out how to get back home. The good thing is, no matter where we are at, Janelle and I both, we have a GPS on our phone. So no matter how far off the path we get, we have a GPS that can always lead us back home to our destination, to where we want to go. This morning, I want you to think about this question, where do you want to go with your life? Where do you hope your life will end up? Where do you want your destination to be? What is the goal of your life? The telos is what some philosophers call it. Maybe for you, you just want a life that is fun. You want a fun life, and you just want a happy life. Or maybe for you, you want to have a successful career, and you want to, at the end of your life, have more money than anybody else. Or maybe you want to have a strong, strong family, a family that makes a difference in the community. What is the goal of your life? Where do you hope it will end up? For some of you, you have this already mapped out. There's like two personalities when it comes to these questions. Like some people, they say, this is the goal that I'm shooting for, and if I don't make it, I'm a failure. Some of you are like that. I'm close to that. And then there's other people who say, you know what, Michael, I'm a single parent, and um, I'm just trying to get clothes on my kids every morning, and if I do that, that is a successful day. Well, it doesn't matter how you answered the question, where do you want to go in life? I think every single one of us, deep down, has a yearning, has a desire to end up wherever God is. I truly believe that every single one of us, we have a God-sized hole in our hearts, and we yearn for God. The problem is we are all like the prodigal son, and we run away from home. We chase after other gods instead of ending up with God. 
Henry Nouwen, he's a, uh, well, he was a Catholic priest and he was a, a Christian writer. He wrote on 39 different books on the spiritual journey with Jesus. And he wrote about this, about how we chase after other gods. And here's what he says in his book called The Return of the Prodigal Son. He says this, he said, over and over again, I have left home. I have fled the hands of blessing and run off to faraway places searching for love. This is the great tragedy of my life and the lives of so many I meet on my journey. Somehow I have become deaf to the voice that calls me the beloved. There are many other voices, the dark voices of my surrounding world. They try to persuade me that I am no good and that I can only become good by earning my goodness through making it up the ladder of success. These are Henry Nouwen's words, but I think they could be true of every single one of us. We run away from home. We run away from God. But the good news is, is that God has given us a GPS system a tool to help lead us back into the path of life. God has given us His Word, the Bible, to help reorient us and to make our way back to the path of life. God's Word guides us into the path of life. And I don't know if there's a better chapter than to look at Psalm chapter 119 for this. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Psalm 119. It should be smack dab in the middle of your Bible. And as you get there, I also want to draw your attention to our stage one more time. Our kids have been doing a great job with our stage decor as we are in this series called Bodies That Worship. And we've been talking about how to use our bodies and all of our body parts, our eyes, our hearts, our mouth, our hands, and now our feet, how we can use all of them to worship God. And what you need to know about Psalm 119 is that it may be the most beautiful chapter that has ever been written in all of literature, not just the Bible, but in all of literature. It has 176 verses. It has 2,445 words. It's divided into 22 different sections or strophes that follow the Hebrew alphabet. And every single one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet has exactly eight verses. And so this chapter, Psalm 119, was created for God's people to learn God's Word, to memorize and meditate on God's Word so that they could walk in the path of God, so that they could walk in the path of life. And the psalmist knows this, and so he begins the psalm, well, where we are going to start, in verse 97, and he says this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And so the psalmist is saying, I am constantly meditating and thinking on your law or your instructions, God. It is so beautiful. It's uh, very similar to the way the book of Psalms begins. The second verse of this book of Psalms, it begins like this. It says, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Well, what is meditation? Well, meditation is the exact opposite of what happens when I go to a restaurant every time I go to the restaurant. Because my philosophy when I go to a restaurant is to eat as much food as possible as quickly as possible. And so uh, this 
really happens when I go to like places like Mexican places where we get free chips and salsa. Like before we get to the actual meal, uh, I'll eat three baskets of chips by myself because I'm just trying to eat as much as possible. I just want to feel full. And so I'm like a vacuum cleaner and I just inhale the food. I'm like our cat at home, doesn't even chew his food, just inhales it. So that is the exact opposite of meditation. Meditation is the picture of a dog gnawing on a bone, just chewing on it all day. Meditation is thinking on and chewing on God's word over and over and over again. And the psalmist is doing that with God's word. Why? Well, because it ultimately results in wisdom. The psalmist is meditating on God's word because he knows it leads to wisdom. Listen to what verses 98 through 100 say. It says, your commandments, they make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. And so the psalmist is saying, I have more wisdom than my enemies, more wisdom than my teachers, more wisdom than even the elders in our community. And, and, and it's not to denigrate those other people, maybe the enemies, but not his teachers and the elders. No, it's just saying that this man knows, the psalmist knows, that God's word ultimately makes him wiser. God's word is greater than anything else when it comes to wisdom. And so he is more wise when he meditates on God's word, and he is more wise than the people around him. I'm reminded of a Geico commercial. And so I just want to show you this 30-second clip of this Geico commercial. Go ahead and make a watch. All right, so that commercial just always makes me laugh. But the psalmist is saying when he meditates on God's word, he's wise. When he meditates on God's words, he makes wise decisions. He doesn't go hide behind the chainsaws. No, he hops in the running car to get out of there. He knows that God's word will make him wise. And this is important for us today because in our world, we are becoming less and less wise. And what I mean by that is wisdom, biblical wisdom, is applying God's truth to our lives. That's all wisdom is. It's applying God's truth to our lives. And this is not uh, to bash our culture. It's just the reality. More and more people are identifying as nuns. Not the Catholic nuns, but the nuns that say we have no religious affiliation. And so it's impossible for people who don't know God's word to apply God's word into their lives. It is impossible for them to live life wisely. And so God, and what the psalmist is inviting us to, is a life of wisdom. To constantly be meditating and knowing God's word. Because if we do that, it will lead to a wise life. And one of the things that uh, it will show us is that we can run away from evil. Like if we, if we want to worship God with our feet, one of the wisest decisions we can do is run away 
from evil. Here's what it says in verses 101 and 102. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. So the psalmist is saying, I am keeping my feet back from anything that is evil. I am going to run away from evil at all costs. I don't want to do anything unwise. I don't want to uh, denigrate God's name. I want to keep his reputation holy. Anytime we think about running away from evil, I'm always reminded of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Many of you know the story of Joseph. Joseph, at the time of the story, was the youngest of 11 brothers, and his dad, Jacob, loved Joseph more than anybody else, so much so that he gave him a special coat to wear, and that was the last straw for his brothers. They saw how much favoritism their dad, Jacob, had for Joseph that they decided to kill him. And so they threw him into a pit. They literally threw him into a well to kill him. And they decided, ah, we better not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. And so they sold him to the Midianites to go into slavery. And Joseph ends up in Egypt as a slave for a man named Potiphar. Well, throughout everything that's going on in Joseph's story, it tells us constantly that God was with him, God was with him, God was with him. And so Joseph, he was pretty successful, and Potiphar saw that he was a really good organizer. And so he made Joseph the head of his household. The problem was Joseph was a good-looking dude. And because he was a good-looking dude, Potiphar's wife wanted to sleep with him. Multiple times, Potiphar was trying to sleep with Joseph until finally only Joseph and Potiphar are in, and Potiphar's wife are in the house together. And listen to what happens in Genesis chapter 39, verse 12. It says this, She, the wife, caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled. Notice that word. He fled and got out of the house. Joseph fled. He ran away from evil. And I think it's because he knew how powerful sexual temptation can be. Some of you know how powerful sexual temptation can be because you've either fallen into it or it's been enticing to you in the past. And Joseph says, hey, I, I can't just stick around this. I got a Usain Bolt out of here and run as fast as I can to keep away from evil. And not only does Joseph do what he should do, But he models for us what we should do when it comes to evil. We should run away from evil. But to truly run away from evil, we have to know what evil is. To run away from sin, we actually have to know what sin is. And that's why it's so important that we are in God's word. We can't know what God wants in our relationships. We can't know what God wants with our sexuality. We can't know what God wants with our money. We can't know what God wants with our family. We can't know what God wants with our jobs unless we are constantly meditating and digging into God's word. And if we don't know God's word, then it's impossible for us to run away from evil. And so we must constantly be meditating and chewing on scripture. That's what the psalmist is doing. Listen to the next two verses, verse 103 and verse 104. The psalmist says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. To the psalmist, God's word is like honey. It's sweet to the taste. It's finger-licking good to him. And not only is it finger-licking good, but it also has transformed him. 
It has changed him to where he begins to like what God likes and he hates what God hates. Do you see that at the very end of verse 104? He says, therefore, I hate every false way. God's word has changed him. But some of you may be saying, that's good for the psalmist guy. But for me, when I look at the Bible, it is not sweet as honey at all. In fact, when I look at the Bible, it's difficult to understand. I don't know what's going on. Or you might even be saying, when I read the Bible, sometimes there's things in there that I disagree with. And so this, this experience for the psalmist is not what I experience. And so if that's you, I just want to say two things very briefly. Number one, that God's word can never be separated from God's relationship with his people. God's word can never be, related, or, uh, never be separated from God's relationship with his people. And what I mean by that is that God has given us his word to his people so that we could know who he is and what he does. God has given his word to his people so that we could know our purpose in life. And this whole book, this Bible, it ultimately points us to Jesus who is our savior and he's our king, but he also also models for us what it looks like to truly be human. And so however you understand the Bible, you have to understand that the Bible is written for God's people to have a relationship with him. That's the first thing I think we need to remember. The second is that I think the Bible is an acquired taste. The Bible, you can disagree with me, but I think the Bible is an acquired taste. Let me illustrate it this way. How many of you in here, by the raise of hands, yes, I need your participation. How many of you in here have ever tried a diet before? Anybody? Okay. All right. Most of you. Yeah, I've, I've tried a diet too. And if you're anything like me or pretty much the rest of humanity, you lasted about two or three days and then you couldn't do it anymore. You said, this food is terrible. It's bland. It's awful. I can't do it anymore. But if you actually push to week three or week four, scientists have shown that your taste buds actually change. Your taste buds are actually reset the more that you eat that healthy food. And after about a month or two, that soda that you used to drink every single day, when you drink it, it will taste terrible to you. Why? Well, because you have acquired the taste for healthy food. And I want to argue the Bible is somewhat similar in that it's an acquired taste. The more you read the Bible, the more you meditate on the Bible, the more you think about God's word, you will change. There's some of you in here who you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have been meditating on God's word for years and you have experienced the living God through it. But that didn't happen just one night. It happened over and over and over again. And so I think that the Bible has to be, it is, it is an acquired taste. But some of you still might be saying, but that doesn't help me right now because I still haven't acquired that taste. And if that's you, I just want to say, no matter where we are in our journey with Jesus, one of the best things that we can do is learn how to read the Bible well. Tim Keller, he's a, an author, he's a pastor up in New York, and he says, before we can meditate on the Bible like the psalmist does, before we can meditate on it, we have to understand what it's talking about. At least we have to understand what God is trying to communicate to us through it before we can actually meditate on it. And I think he is... Right, and so I think one of the best things we can do is learn how to read the Bible well. And thankfully for you and me, we live in an information age where we have plenty of resources to help us read the Bible well. I just want to highlight one for us today. Uh, it's the resource called How to Read the Bible 
by Michael DeFazio. It's on Right Now Media. If you don't have a Right Now Media account, all you have to do is text Berlin CC to that number, and it will set you up an account just like that. It's like the Netflix of Christian Bible studies. I can't encourage it enough. But this study is specifically meaningful to me because Michael DeFazio, he taught me how to read the Bible. For a semester at Ozark Christian College, I took a class on how to read the Bible well with this guy. And he is a mentor of mine. He is a friend of mine. And I can't think of anybody better than him to guide us as we try and learn the Bible well. And so I want to encourage you to either watch these eight sessions. They're only 15 to 20 sessions all by yourself. Or even better, invite three to five people to watch these sessions with you and to discuss them. It doesn't have to be this really, uh, you, you don't really even need to know how to do a Bible study. Just watch these together and talk about it. That's how you do the Bible studies. And so I want to encourage you to do that because I can't think of anything better for our kids and for our teenagers and for us as adults than to know how to read God's word well. Because God's word, as we begin to read it and meditate on it, it will become like honey. It will be finger-licking good to us, and it will show us how to run away from evil. But not only does God, God's word show us how to run away from evil, it also shows us how to walk with God. How to walk with God. Look at verse 105 with me. It says this. It says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word, God, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I just want to focus on this one verse for the rest of our time together because I think it shows us that our journey with God is a journey. <laughs> it's a journey with Jesus and it's a pilgrimage. We have ups and we have downs, we have twists and we have turns, but throughout it all, God wants to walk with us. Throughout it all, God wants to illuminate the path that ultimately leads to life. God desires to walk with his people. God desires to walk with you, and he desires to walk with me. We actually see that in the very first pages of scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything perfect, and he created you and me, humanity, in his image, and he put them in this garden, this perfect garden, and God walked with them. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, 8, here's what it says. It says, The Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the reason that they hid themselves is because this is after they have eaten from the forbidden fruit, something they were not supposed to do, and so they feel ashamed. And so rather than walking with God like they would normally do every day, they instead hide from God. And so God's people go from walking with God to not walking with God. But thankfully, there's hope just a couple chapters later. We hear about a guy named Enoch. We don't know much about Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, but here's what it tells us in Genesis chapter 5. It says, Enoch walked with God. That's pretty cool. Enoch walked with God. And then in the next chapter, we hear about Noah and it says this in Noah chapter 6, verse 9. You know Noah, Noah who built the ark. Here's what it says about him. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. But here's the thing. Nobody else in all of the Bible walked with God. Only those two people, 
Enoch and Noah walked with God. You can skim all the way through your Old Testament. No one else walked with him. And so God, he urges people. He tells Abraham, you know Abraham, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. He tells him to walk before him. He also tells King David, who uh, Stacy did a great job talking about. He told King David and his sons, he said, If you will walk before me, I will bless you and your kingdom will last forever. But we're not told of anybody else who actually walked with God. And so, as is often the case in the Bible, God took the initiative. God took the initiative to begin walking with his people again. First, you see it in the book of Leviticus. If you know anything about the book of Leviticus, it's all about rules and regulations, rituals, slaughtering of animals and sacrifices. If you've ever read your Bible and tried to read your Bible in a year, you probably got through Genesis, maybe all the way through Exodus, and then you got to Leviticus and said, this is so weird, I'm out of here, I can't read this. Well, Leviticus, it's all about, even though it's rules and regulations, it's all about an unholy people meeting with a holy God. It's all about how can these unholy people, God's people, meet and walk with God. And here's what God says to them in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12. He says to them, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. So God is promising to them. That he is going to walk in their midst. Fast forward two more books in the Bible. You get to the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses is preaching his final sermons to God's people as they are about to enter into the promised land. And as he's preaching in Deuteronomy chapter 23, he begins to tell them to keep away from every evil thing. It sounds very much like what we read earlier. To run away from evil, and then God says this to his people in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 14. Or this is Moses talking about God. It says, Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. So Moses is preaching to these people and he's saying, Run away from evil so that God can walk in your midst. Later in the Old Testament, God gave his people the law. And he said, if you will follow this law, this is how you can walk with me and restore back to what we had in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The problem is, time and time again, Israel failed. God's people failed and they rejected God's grace. And so in the New Testament... God gave his people something better. God gave his people someone better. The capital W word, he gave us Jesus. God's ultimate word, God's final revelation. Here's what John, the apostle John, says about this word in John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, the word became flesh. Think about that. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So the word, God's word, Jesus, he put on flesh and blood and he became like you and me in every single way and he dwelled with us. He walked with us. Jesus had Palestinian dirt underneath his toenails. God himself walked with us to show us the path of life in a world 
full of darkness. Jesus is the light. He said this in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. In a world that is lost, Jesus shows us the way. He says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, or the road, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whoever follows me will always have life. And in a world full of brokenness and restlessness, Jesus is our cure. He says this in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. That invitation can very easily be translated, Come walk with me. Jesus is God's word leading us into the path of life. And so if you go to Psalm 119, and anytime you see the word or the law, I want to encourage you to replace that with Jesus. Because here's what it says in verse 105. It says, Jesus is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Jesus is the path of life. And he teaches us to run away from evil. And he teaches us how we can walk with God. I want to leave you with one last challenge and one last question. This week, here's the challenge for you. Take a walk. I want you to take a walk this week. I don't care where it's to. I don't care how long it is. I don't care who it's with. But I want to encourage you to take a walk. And as you take a walk, I want you to be thinking about your relationship with God. And I want you to ask this one question. What is my next step with Jesus? What is my next step with Jesus? Some of you, when I ask that question, you know exactly what that next step is. And for others of you, you have no idea. That's why you need to take a walk and talk to God about it. Because for some of you, you need to take the step of baptism. You've been fighting it for so long, but you can feel the Holy Spirit nudging you to get into the baptistry, to surrender everything you have to Jesus. For others of you, you've been holding on to resentment for years. And you know that your next step is to ask God to help you forgive. Because you need to release that burden that you're holding on to. For others of you, maybe you've just grown stagnant with your faith. And what you need to do is you need to do that how to read the Bible with Michael DeFazio. And you need to do a Bible study with other people so that you can be in community with other people growing in your faith together. And for others of you, you've been doing this journey with Jesus a really long time, and you need to begin discipling other people. It could be other adults. It could be people who are younger than you, the next generation. And you just need to mentor them. I don't know what your next step is, but thankfully the Holy Spirit does. And so I want to encourage you this week to take a walk and take your next step with Jesus, because Jesus guides us into the path of life. And he takes us wherever we need to go. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your instructions that guide us into the path of life. And we see that ultimately in Jesus. Thank you for Jesus and how he has walked with you and went to the cross for us. Help us to walk with you in this relationship day after day after day. We want to worship you, so help us to do that. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you'd like to talk about your next step with Jesus or if you would like some prayers, uh, I'll be out by the, the welcome table, which is just outside the sanctuary to your left. Thank you.